This morning, we are going to be looking at Joshua chapter 3 and Joshua chapter 4. But because we are going to be covering so many verses uh, today, what we are going to do, which is just a, a little bit different, is uh, we are going to cover uh, um, the majority of the passages as we, as we go. And something that I'm going to do today that I don't usually do is instead of looking at this under two headings or three headings, what we're, we're, we're instead going to do is we're going to essentially take away uh, three lessons or three principles that we learn about God in these two chapters. And, and something that I really want to emphasize before we jump in is that these lessons, these principles are things that are true of God. They are God-centered lessons, God-centered principles. In other words, the goal here is not for us to be more like Joshua or for us to be more like the Israelites. I, my goal today was to take lessons and principles that are, were true of God then and are still true of God today. Um, so that we end up not becoming more like the characters of the Bible, but we end up relying more on the God of the Bible. Amen? So the first principle uh, and lesson that I believe we take away from Joshua 3 and 4 is this. We must never confuse a place or a period with God's presence. We must never confuse a specific place or a specific period with God's presence. Now, where do I get that? Well, I'm going to read to you here in a second from Joshua, 1, uh, Joshua 3, 1 through 6. But before I do, let me set the stage a little bit. In Joshua 3 and in Joshua 4, Joshua and the Israelites are finally ready to enter into the promised land. And so they find themselves at the edge of the Jordan River, and they are finally entering into the promised land that God has promised to them. And so as they are entering, they have to deal with a very big obstacle in the way, which is the Jordan River. How are they going to get through the Jordan River? And so the story that we discover in Joshua 3 and in Joshua 4 is the story uh, about how God gets them through the Jordan River. And then once he gets them through in chapter 4, we hear the story of the stones of remembrance that God has them set up so that they never forget what he did in that place. And so that's the context for Joshua 3 and 4. And like I said, I believe the first lesson we learn is that we must never confuse a specific place or a specific period with God's presence. Now, where do I get that? Well, look what it says in verses one through six of Joshua chapter three. It says, then Joshua uh, rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim and they came to the Jordan and he and all the people of Israel and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God, being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the place you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. I'm going to read that part again because it's a very important part of the text. For you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priest, take up the ark of the covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the ark of the covenant and went before the people. So I would argue that the first lesson, the first principle that we learn here in verses one through six is that we must never confuse a place or a period with God's presence. Now, what do I mean by that? 
Well, one of the things that I think you maybe picked up on as we were reading through these six verses, and you will pick up even more on as we read the rest of this passage, is that in chapter three, there is a phrase that is repeated again and again. As a matter of fact, it is repeated 14 times in 17 verses. So the author is really trying to emphasize it. And the phrase that is repeated again and again is the phrase, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. It is repeated 14 times in 17 verses. And the reason for that is because the author, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to see the centrality of God's presence in this story. The Ark of the Covenant, for those of you who don't know, was the visible representation of God. It was easily, hands down, the most holy physical possession that the Israelites had because it symbolized and represented God's presence. Uh, The Ark of the Covenant, if you've ever watched Indiana Jones, uh, was a uh, wooden box uh, with a gold lid on it. Um, And inside of this wooden box, what you found was, there was three things, three artifacts from the history of Israel. Uh, One thing that was in there was the Ten Commandments, so the two tablets that Moses brought down from the mountain. Uh, The other thing that was in the Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's rod, which was a very significant part of the Exodus story. And then the third thing that was in the Ark of the Covenant was a jar of manna, which is the bread-like substance that God provided in the wilderness. So that was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was so holy that nobody can touch it. You could not touch it. As a matter of fact, there's a story in the Bible where someone decides to touch it. The Ark is falling and someone reaches out to keep it from falling and God kills them on the spot. And what the Bible teaches is essentially, one commentator says, that the mistake that Jew made is that he assumed he was cleaner than the ground. He assumed he was cleaner than the dirt that the ark was about to fall on. And so we weren't, they weren't ever allowed to touch it. And so if they weren't allowed to touch it, then how did they move it? Well, the way that they moved it is God had it created in such a way that on the ark there were uh, metal, uh, I don't remember if it was brass or gold, but there was these rings. And what you would do is you would take a pole and you would run it through the rings and then you would be able to lift it up. So essentially four Levites would lift up the ark of the covenant and they would move it that way. But you could never touch the Ark of the Covenant. You could not touch it. You were not allowed to. And then on top of the Ark of the Covenant was what uh, uh, scholars refer to as the mercy seat. And and essentially what it was is on this gold lid, uh, there was two angels, two cherubim, and they were facing each other. They were looking down. Their wings were touching and they were looking down at that, the the middle part, the, the middle part of the lid. And that area, which is the mercy seat, that's the area that they're looking on Uh, there in the middle was where God's presence actually was. A lot of people think God's presence was inside the ark, but according to the Bible, God's presence was on the lid of the ark in that space in between the the two cherubim, the two angels. And it was referred to as the mercy seat because that is where the Israelites would go to plead for mercy. Uh, On the day of atonement, they would kill uh, the the spotless, unblemished lamb, and then they would take its blood, the, the priest would, And once a year, he would take the blood of the lamb and he would sprinkle it on this mercy seat, on this spot in between the two angels. And it was literally them asking God for mercy in light of the blood of the lamb. And so in many ways, in all of the other kingdoms in those days, the the kings of those kingdoms, we learned yesterday about about last week about the king of Jericho. Many of them had thrones. Well, God's throne was that, his seat where he sat 
was, in, was on the mercy seat in that space in between. He had a throne in heaven, obviously, as well, but on earth, that is where God dwelt. That's where his presence was. Now, the reason why I take so much time to explain what the Ark of the Covenant is is because the author of this chapter goes out of his way, like I said, to mention again and again the centrality of God's presence. He brings up the Ark of the Covenant again and again. And the reason why that happens is because God wants us, he wanted them to know uh, back then and us to know today that at the end of the day, this story is not ultimately about Joshua or about Israel or about Canaan. This story is about God. It's, it's about his faithfulness and ultimately about his presence. Now, the reason why that's so important is because I think that it starts to explain the principle that we are looking at, this first principle that we are looking at, that we must never confuse a certain place or a certain period with God's certain presence. See, what I need you to understand is, even in light of how this passage is written, is that what made the promised land the promised land is that God was there, okay? I want to make that crystal clear. There was nothing special about the land of Canaan at all. There was probably much better land in other places of the world. What made the promised land the promised land was that God was there. In other words, if God wasn't there, it wouldn't be the promised land. You get what I'm saying? But here's why that's so important. If what made the promised land the promised land is God's presence, then in some ways, the wilderness was kind of like the promised land. Because it's wherever God is that you need to be. You get what I'm saying? That, that's very important. Because if not, you can fall into the trap of thinking, oh, oh that's, that's where God is. I got to get over there because God's over there. But if what makes the promised land the promised land is God, you can have just as much God in the wilderness as you do in the promised land. And there are people here today who are in a wilderness season convinced that God will finally show up at some point. And I need you to know that God is just as present in your life right now than he will be whenever you get to wherever you need to get to. Can I get an amen? That's what we see here. That if what made the promised land the promised land special was God's presence, then the same God who would be there is the same God who is here. You see, but, but the problem is the Israelites make a very big mistake, and I would argue it's the same mistake that many of us make. The Israelites ended up idolizing, instead of worshiping God, they ended up idolizing a certain, a specific period of time instead of a specific person. They ended up idolizing a place instead of God's presence. They ended up idolizing a season instead of their Savior. That's the issue that the Israelites have. And here's how we know. Because according to the book of Hosea and the book of Amos, these same Israelites who are asked by God to set up stones of remembrance, by the time the book of Hosea happens, these Israelites, instead of going to Jerusalem and worshiping God where he wanted them to worship, they ended up worshiping these stones instead. Instead of worshiping the God of the stones, they started worshiping the stones themselves. And so Hosea and Amos have to inform the Israelites that they have sinned against God. They are committing idolatry. They are focused on a, period, a time period instead of a, a person. They are focused on a place instead of his presence. They are focused on a specific season instead of their specific savior. That's the danger. 
And we see it even later on because later on in the Old Testament, those same Israelites, we are told in Ezekiel that their sin becomes so bad that God's presence leaves the temple. God is so fed up with their sin and their disobedience that Ezekiel sees a vision and in the vision, God's presence leaves the temple. You know who that didn't bother at all? The Israelites. Because God left and they kept going to the same temple. Matter of fact, most Jews today who have refused to believe in Jesus, Paul talks about it in the book of Romans, they're still desperately trying to build, rebuild the temple again. When we were in Israel, that's what we were told, that they have all the supplies they need to rebuild the temple again. The problem is, is even if they rebuild that temple again in the same exact spot, God won't be there. God left the temple a long time ago. But that didn't stop them because they worship the place more than his presence. What's interesting is that the same Israelites, when they get sent out into exile, we are told that they are taken into Babylon. And that when they get to Babylon, you would think since exile was a punishment, you would think God wasn't there. But when you read the book of Daniel, you see God all over it. He's with Daniel and, and gives Daniel favor with the king. He's with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he's with them in the fire. That's the song we were just singing, Right? God is in Babylon with them. Let me put it to you like this. It is better to be in Babylon with God than to be in Jerusalem without him. Let me say that again. It is better to be in Babylon with God than to be in Jerusalem without him. It is better to be in the wilderness with God than to be in the promised land without him. But if we're not careful, we can end up idolizing the place instead of the person. That is the danger. And John Piper in one of his books talks about this. He says that what makes heaven heaven is that God's there. And that what makes hell hell is that God is not there. So, so if God isn't in heaven, heaven is in heaven. Do you get what I'm saying? That, that's what we see, that the, God's presence is the biggest difference between heaven and hell. So heaven is probably the, the place where we're most likely to say, oh, if once I get there, everything will be better. No, if you get to that place and God's presence ain't there, it ain't heaven. Because what makes heaven heaven is God's presence. So the lesson that we learn here is that we must never confuse a specific place or a specific period with God's presence. Here's why I think this principle is so important for, for all of us, regardless of what stage of life you are in. Um, as you guys know, I like to talk about idolatry a lot. I, I think idolatry impacts us way more than we think. And there are two types of idolatry that are rarely addressed in the church. And I want to talk about each right now. And I would argue that depending on how old you are determines which type of idolatry you probably most struggle with. The first type of idolatry is what I call next stage idolatry. And then the second type of idolatry is what I call past stage idolatry. Let me, let me explain each one. The first type of idolatry that is very common in the church today and was very common even in Israel back then, especially in the younger generation, is next stage idolatry. What, what do I mean by that? If we are not careful, we can end up idolizing a specific period of time or a specific place. And so here's what happens. We're convinced that we're not really satisfied and happy yet, but once I get to the next stage of life, I'll be happy. Once I get to the next stage of life, 
I will finally be satisfied. So, so if you are living in your parents' house, you will be satisfied and content when you move out. And then you're not, and then many of you end up moving back in. It's awkward, okay? <laughs> or, or, or when you're single, oh, I will finally be satisfied and content when I'm dating somebody. Then when you're dating, no, no, it'll all get better when we're engaged. And then when you're engaged, oh, I just can't wait for the day we are married. And then when you're married, oh, I just can't wait for us to have kids. And then when you have kids, then I just can't wait for these fools to move out, right? <laughs> and it just keeps going. Next stage idolatry. This season didn't do it, so the next season will do it. That's what next stage idolatry is. There are people here convinced that they're going to be more satisfied in the next season than they are in this season. The problem is, the only thing that will satisfy you in either season is the presence of God. See, but here's what happens, though. Here's what I say that that first type of idolatry is more, uh, is more of a symptom of a younger generation because you get to a place in life when you finally get old enough, when you start to realize that either you just don't have that many stages left or... You just see, well, I'm really not going to be satisfied by anything that comes later. But instead of stopping and worshiping God, here's what older generations do. They say, oh, you know what it was? It's not the, it's not the next stage that's going to make me happy. It was some past stage that I missed. If my, my, my golden years was when I was in high school or when I was in college or when I was a, a young adult or be when we were married without kids. If I can just go back to that moment, everything will be better. We, we get to a place where there's not enough next stage things, and so we start looking at past stage things, and we think, if I can just go back to that time when that person was alive or, or that job was my title or my children were younger or whatever it is, and we start looking back thinking, if I can just go back then, I would be satisfied, completely forgetting that when you were in that season, you were looking forward to another one. And then you have this awkward thing where you have people who are in their 50s acting like they're 20. It's real awkward. <laughs> when people in their 50s are dressing like they're in their 20s. And you follow them on social media and you're like, this is, this is kind of weird. You're pushing 60, bro. <laughs> you might have peaked in high school, but doesn't mean you got to go back there. That's the danger. If you confuse a certain period or a certain place with God's certain presence, you will either idolize the future or you will idolize the past. And that's what Israel did. When they were in the wilderness, they talked about how great Egypt was. Then they got into the promised land. They thought, well, maybe, maybe in Egypt, maybe it's the promised And they got the promised land and they were still just as empty. Because what makes a season a season, what makes a place a place is the presence of God. And unfortunately, many of us are so busy looking forward to the future or looking back towards the past that we are completely missing what God is doing in the present. Pastor A.W. Tozer said this. He said, true and absolute freedom is only found in the presence of God. When we are enjoying the conscious presence of God, we are fulfilling the tenets of our salvation. So that's the first principle we learn, that we must never confuse a place or a period with God's presence. The second principle that we learn here in this passage, in these two chapters, is this. 
God requires all of our faith even when we don't have all of the facts. God requires all of our faith even when we don't have all of the facts. Now, now where do I get that? Well, look what it says in verse seven of Joshua chapter three. I'm gonna read through 17. It says, the, the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Verse 11, behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the Lord. Verse 15, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priest bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Everyone say the feet. And this is important. And the feet of the priest bearing the Ark were dipped in the, the brink of the water then it says, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down towards the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So I would argue that in these verses, the second lesson, the second principle that we learn about God and his character is that God requires all of our faith, even when we don't have all of the facts. See, in the story, what we see is God requires from Joshua and the priest complete faith, even though he hasn't given them complete facts. And we see that in two ways. Uh, the first way is that there is an unprepared trip. And the second way is that there's an unexplainable plan. Let's, let's look at both of them. The first way is that there's an unprepared trip. Why? Because in verses one through six, God tells Joshua, hey, today's the day. Today is the day that I want you to take the people of Israel and I want you to move them from your camp to the edge of the Jordan. Now, for us, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Big whoop. He is taking a group of people from one place to another. But here's what you don't know unless you study the story. It wasn't just a group of people. 
It wasn't a hundred, or just hundreds of people or thousands of people, even, or even hundreds of thousands of people. It was over a million people that Joshua had to move from the camp to the Jordan. And it wasn't just that it was a million people. It, it, it was 10 miles, 10 miles from the camp to the Jordan. So, so imagine having to move 10, well not 10, not 10 million people, a million people, 10 miles. And this group of people includes very, very small infants and older people as well. And moving that group of people 10 miles in the wilderness in the heat of the day. Just to give you an idea of how hard this is, uh, just yesterday, my family and I, uh, we went to Shelby Farms. And at Shelby Farms, we didn't know this was an option, but we went online and we figured out that you can actually rent a paddle boat uh, for uh, 30 minutes. So we rented a four-person paddle boat. We're like, this is going to be so much fun, right? And the way over there, I'm thinking, 30 minutes, that doesn't even seem like that long of a time. Like, you know, time's going to fly by. You know, 30 minutes, come on, this is, we're getting gypped, you know? And, and then we get there, and, and my two daughters sit in the front of the paddle boat. We sit in the back of the paddle boat. And I, and I kid you not, within like three minutes of the girl pushing us off the dock, my girls were complaining already. It's like, it's so hot and it's so hot right now. What are we doing here? <laughs> and then we were right by the, 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 the ropes course. And so every like few minutes, someone would come down the zip line. They're like, why can't we just do that? <laughs> I'm like, because if we did that, you would be complaining about how we should be doing this. Right? And so it was a mixture of stuff. There was, there was times where they were pedaling and we were trying to take a break. And there was times where we were pedaling and they were trying to take a break. And then because they were sitting next to each other, the way those pedal boats work is that if the person next to you is rowing, yours are going to start moving. And so one girl wanted to pedal when the other one didn't. So they were like holding it and she wouldn't let her sister do it. <laughs> and then there was times where we were trying to go forward and they were trying to go backward and we were, going, we were just going in circles. We, as a family of four, couldn't even get 10 yards. <laughs> and Joshua is asked to move a million people 10 miles. And what's interesting, and some of you can relate to this, there are people in this room who are planners. You like to plan. You like to know what the plan is. Like if you're going on a trip, you want to know what time you're leaving. You want to know what time is lunch. You want to know how many snacks to bring, right? Hey, like, like, like that's how me and my wife are very different. Which, by the way, she didn't want me to tell you this, but today's our anniversary, 12-year anniversary today. She said, if I were to summarize our marriage with a movie title, it would be It's a Wonderful Life, right? If she were to summarize our marriage, it would be 12 years of slave, okay? Like, that would, <laughs> that would, be, that would be her 12 years. But... Uh, but, but anyway, so, so, so we've been together now 12 years. And so yesterday we were out, we are celebrating, great time, right? Um, and so we, got, we had to deal with our complaining daughters. But here's something that I've learned about my wife. Uh, my wife, if we're going on a trip, she needs as many details as possible before we leave. She just does. And she actually gets this a lot from her mom. Her mom is like that too. She wants to leave the, the, when we're leaving, when we're taking a break. And then they do the math in their head. Like how many, okay, a, a, a one hour trip, okay, that means we need 47 snacks for one hour, Okay. <laughs> And I'm like, 47 snacks? Like, is it a snack a minute? Like, what are we doing here, right? And then sometimes she's driving and I become the snack guy. Like, the girls are hungry. Give them another snack. And I'm like, I'm throwing, like, food back there like they're wild animals. Like, they don't stop. 
Like they devour it and throw the bag of like, you know, goldfish back. And I'm like, what just happened? Right? But there's some people who just like to be prepared. Should I bring sunscreen or should I not? We're approaching a body of water, Joshua. Should I bring a bathing suit or should I not? A floaty maybe? Unprepared plan. It was prepared for God. It wasn't prepared for them. They head out, a million people going 10 miles. And, and what's interesting is that if you look at the flow of the story, God sends Joshua out but doesn't tell Joshua what he's going to do with the Jordan River. So, so Joshua and with everybody who's going with him, they're walking towards what they know is going to be the landmark, the Jordan River. They're going to have to cross the Jordan River. But God doesn't actually tell Joshua what he's going to do with the river until they show up at the river. So Joshua's sitting there thinking, how the heck am I going to get a million people across this river? And, and here's the thing that you may not know. It, it says in the passage that it was during harvest season. So it was during the time of March, April that they crossed over this river. Okay? Now, why is that significant? Well, because usually the Jordan River during any other time of year was about 100 feet in width from one edge to the other, about 100 feet, which is pretty significant already. But during the harvest season, when the river would flood, it would go from 100 feet in width to a mile in width. And it would go from about six to eight feet in depth to about 12 feet in depth. So he's showing up at a river, not knowing what God's going to do with the river before he gets there. And the river is a mile wide, not 100 feet wide, and 12 feet deep on average instead of six to eight feet deep. That is what Joshua is stepping into. And because it was wider and deeper, the current was a lot stronger. And so Joshua in his mind is thinking, how are we going to get these people across without many people dying trying to get through this Jordan? They didn't have the equipment to, buy, to build boats or a bridge. And what's interesting, and this is why I wanted to emphasize the word feet or foot, is because God says, and this is, you could read right past this if you're not paying attention. God says, I will not open the waters until the priest gets his feet wet. Until the priest puts his foot in the water, I'm not going to split the waters. Don't miss that part. You see, because if by the time they got there, God had already split the, the river, there would be no faith involved. But God says, I will not split the waters until the priest gets his feet wet. So what we see in this story is that God requires all of Joshua's faith even when Joshua doesn't have all of the facts. And I would argue that that's actually the pattern that God continues to show us in Scripture. That, that what we see in Scripture is that whenever God calls us to vertical faith, that vertical faith was, must always result in horizontal fruit. See, we usually think about faith like this passive feeling that comes and goes. But what we see in Scripture is that faith is not a passive feeling. It is an active decision. It has nothing to do with your feelings at all, actually. It is an active decision to trust and rest and rely your full person on the person of God. That's what we talked about in the last series when we were talking about the hammock. It's laying out on the hammock. That's what true faith actually is. And we see that with many people in Scripture, with, with Noah. 
Noah had to build an ark in the middle of the desert. He didn't even have a, a, a flooded Jordan. They, they, they was just in the desert building an ark for years before God. You know how dumb he would have felt if, if, if the floods never came? We see it with Abraham. He says, Abraham, go. He doesn't even tell him where. He just says, just go. Leave your land. I will show you the place later, but just go. With Moses, with, with Gideon, again and again, with, with Esther, we see it again and again. God is in the business of when he calls you to vertical faith, vertical faith will show itself with horizontal fruit. But if we're totally honest, right, let's be real honest here, we don't actually prefer that type of faith. That's, that's not the type of faith that we signed up for. Like we're not fans of giving God all our faith without God giving us all the facts. Many times, if we're being honest, and I include myself in this, our faith is usually in proportion to our facts. However many facts we have, that's usually how much faith we have. You see, but the problem with that line of thinking, and I don't want you to miss this, is if your faith is in proportion to your facts, then what that means is your faith is not in God, it's in the facts. That's the danger. That's the problem. See, if, if a lot of us, we aren't willing to get our feet wet. We will cross when the water has been stopped and the ground is bone dry. Then we will cross. But the problem with crossing then is that your faith is not in the creator, it's in your circumstances. It's not in your savior, it's in your situation. That's not faith if you're waiting for the water to completely dry up. And how many of us right now are sitting by the edge of the, of the Jordan waiting on God to give us something that he never promised? God, I'm not gonna move till you give me all the facts. God says, well, it looks like you're gonna stay in the wilderness a little longer then. Because there is a step of faith that has to happen. And sometimes, and I would argue many times, the waters don't open until our feet get wet. See, a lot of us, what we do is we try to live a facts-based facts life. There's nothing wrong with a facts-based life. The problem is if you're not careful, a facts-based life becomes a faith-proof life. I'm going to rely on facts so that I never have to rely on faith. A facts-based life is a faith-proof life. That's why Philip Yancey, in his book on grace, he says this. He says, faith is believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. Faith is believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. See, and we've talked about this in the past, but, but many times we treat faith like the spare tire of our life instead of the steering wheel of our life. Our steering wheel is our facts. We rely on that. But if things get really bad, ah, I got to go get the faith, the, the, the spare tire, right? Got to get a new tire out. And we treat faith like the spare tire for emergencies instead of the steering wheel for everyday life. You know, here's how I would put it. A, a lot of us, we, we treat faith like a savings account, not like a checking account. See, when you put something in the savings account, it's for a rainy day. 
or for when there's a big project you got to get done. Then you go to the savings account. That's how a lot of us treat faith. We, we go to faith when, man, God, I got a big season coming up. I'm really going to need you for this one. Hey, God, I'm, I'm, I'm really struggling right now. I'm going to really need you for this one. And we end up treating faith like a savings account. But in light of scripture, faith is much more like a checkings account. We are to be using it on a daily basis. Like what we have in our checkings account is what we plan to use on a daily, week-to-week basis. Faith is way more checkings than it is savings. But that's not how a lot of us view it. I honestly feel that if we wait for the river to be dry and we wait for the water to be low, then there is no faith needed whatsoever. And that's why many of us, without even realizing what we want, is not just a facts-based life, we want a faith-proof life. And we end up relying on our circumstances and our capacity instead of our creator. But what I see in God's pattern is that many times he makes things way worse before he makes them better. Because God will keep you in that place. He will keep you in that wilderness until you are stripped of your self-sufficiency. He will keep you there until you are willing to admit that there's n- you can have all the facts in the world, but only he will get you through. Only he will get you through that river. And, and, and honestly, that's why I think you see it in Scripture. We see God a lot of times make things worse before he makes them better. In the story of Elisha, when Elisha is going up against the prophets of Baal, and they make a deal essentially, like which, which altar is going to have fire rain down on it, right? God not only says, I'll show up. He says, I want you to drench the altar with water. I want you to make it significantly harder before I show up. And then he shows up and does it anyways. There was so much water that, that there, literally there was a puddle at the bottom of the altar and then God still brings fire down. Even with the story of Gideon, God sees all the soldiers that Gideon has and says, even though your army is way smaller than their army, you still have too many soldiers. I need you to clear, clear out shop a little bit before I show up. God has a way of stripping us so that we move from self-reliance to Christ-reliance. And I, I honestly feel that the reason why God does that is because if we don't trust him for the first step initially, then what makes us think we're going to trust him for the 18th step continually? You get what I'm saying? So, so, so if, I, if, I don't, if, I, if I'm not trusting God for the first step, why would I turn to him for the 15th step or the 25th step or the 300th step? They were going to need God just as much in the promised land as they did in the wilderness. So if they did this without him, they would try to do that without him. The devotional writer Oswald Chambers put it this way. He says, faith never knows where it is being led, but it loves and knows the one who is leading. So the second principle we see is that God requires all of our faith even when we don't have all of the facts. And then lastly, the third and final principle, the third and final lesson that I believe we learn in this story is that we move in Christianity, we move forward in our faith by looking backward at his faithfulness. In Christianity, we move forward by looking backward. Where do I get that from? Well, look what it says in verses one through seven of Joshua chapter four. 
It says, when all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord, your God, into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask you in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. So the last lesson and principle that I believe we learn here is that we move forward in our faith by looking backward at his faithfulness. You see, at the end of this story, God requires the Israelites to set up, to establish stones of remembrance. And according to scholars, because in the Hebrew, it's hard to navigate this, there's actually most likely two sets of stones that God sets up. Usually when people preach this, they say there's only one set of stones. But if you look at the Hebrew and how, it's, how the story is told, it seems that God actually sets up two sets of 12 stones. One set of the 12 is right in the spot where the priests were standing, right in the Jordan. Then the other set of 12 stones was set in Gilgal, which is the place where Joshua essentially has his center of operations for the rest of the book of Joshua. So there are not one set, but there are two sets of stones, two altars that are set up in order for the Israelites to remember what God did on their way into the promised land. The question is, why would God, they have so much to get done. There's only so much time in the day. Why would God make them set up two sets of stones, two two memorials? Why? Why, Why would God do that? Well, I would argue that the reason why God did that is the same reason why God does that to this day. God knew that going forward, the greatest hindrance to their faith was not his faithlessness, but their forgetfulness. God knew that the greatest hindrance to their faith going forward was not his faithlessness, it was their forgetfulness. That's why he does it. God knew that the reason why we doubt is not because we lack evidence, but because we lack remembrance. God knew that if there was any type of faith problem, the problem would not be because he isn't faithful, but because we are forgetful. And that's why he has them set up those stones. He, he wants them to be reminded of what he did. And not just them. If you look at the passage, he wants them to remind the next generation. And then the next generation to remind the next generation. He does not want them to forget what he did or how he did it. In other words, what we see in this story is that in God's economy, we make progress towards the future by consistently remembering the past. And the world is not like that. The world does not work like that. But in God's economy, the way we make progress towards the future is by consistently remembering 
the past. And that's why in verse 10 of chapter 3, the, the, the ESV says it a little bit different, but in many translations, the, the way the Hebrew is translated in verse 10 of chapter 3 is, by this you will know. By this you will know. In other words, what the this that God is referencing there in verse 10 is the miracle that he's about to do at the Jordan River. He says, by this you will know that I will do that. God says, I don't want you to forget this, so when that happens, you know I will be faithful there too. But if you forget this, then you're going to doubt me with that. Does that make sense? God wants them to remember what he did at the Jordan so that when things get difficult in the land of Canaan, they know God will be faithful with that because God was faithful with this. In other words, the author of this chapter is arguing from the greater to the lesser. That's something that God does again and again in Scripture. He argues from the greater to the lesser. In other words, he says, if I was faithful with this thing, the greater thing, then you better believe I will be faithful with the lesser thing. That's how God works. It's, it's, it's almost as if God gives us the gift of salvation, this incredible, invaluable gift of salvation, and we get this box of salvation, we're like, wow, God, this is great. And then a few moments later, we doubt that, we think he's going to get cheap when he's, when, with, with the wrapping and with the bow. He just gave us the most invaluable gift in human history, and then we're doubting him for the bow and the wrapping paper. He argues from the greater to the lesser. Since I did this, I will also do that. That's what we see here in this passage. Now, the question is, and this is one of the things that uh, one of the commentators dealt with, and I'm so glad he did. He says, why does God have them set up stones at the bottom of the Jordan River? Right? Because once the water went back to normal, no one would ever see those stones again. But here's what the commentator said, and I, I never thought of that. You, the Israelites would actually see those stones again. They would actually see it on a yearly basis. Because in times of drought, the Jordan River would get so low that you would see the stones again. And in those days, drought impacted people way more than it impacted us. And so the reason why God put stones at the bottom of the Jordan River is so that in moments of drought going forward, the Jews would look and say, you know what? God provided back then. God was faithful back then. And those stones that would only appear in times of difficulty and of drought were a reminder they would testify to God's power and God's faithfulness. That's why God put stones at the bottom of the Jordan River. So that even in their hard times, they would be reminded that he is faithful. <clears throat> and I would argue that the same lesson and the same principle that was true back then is still true today. The way we move forward in the gospel is by looking backward. But I would argue that in the gospel, we have much more to look forward to because we have much more to look back on. In the gospel, I would argue that unlike the Israelites, we have much more to look forward to because we have much more to look back on. As a matter of fact, in this story, there are two major symbols that play a major role in this passage. The, the first symbol 
is the Ark of the Covenant, and then the second symbol is the Stones of Remembrance. And I would argue that both point us to a greater Ark and a greater stone. Let's look at the Ark first. In the Gospel, I would argue that we have been given something much greater than the Ark of the Covenant. Because remember what the Ark of the Covenant represented. It represented the very presence of God. As long as they had the Ark among them, God was with them. That's the promise. But I would argue that in the New Testament, we have a much greater promise. Because the God that used to be on an ark came down and was now in human flesh. And in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus Christ shows up on the scene and for 33 years, God dwelt, tabernacled among us. But what's even better about that is that that same God, after dying, resurrecting, and ascending, promised us that he would leave us a comforter, the very spirit of God, who now doesn't just dwell among us, but dwells inside of us if we are believers. Church, do not underestimate how beautiful that is. No Jew in their wildest dreams would have ever guessed that God would dwell among them as a person and even more than that, dwell inside them in spirit. They never would have guessed that. As a matter of fact, as they are traveling, God says, I need you to stay 2,000 cubits behind. Not just so you can see where I am going, but because I am so holy and you are so sinful that you cannot be in my presence. But now in Jesus, the presence of God is not on an ark. It's in our in our temple, the body. That's crazy. But what we see is not just a greater ark in the gospel. I would argue that we also see a greater stone. See, in this passage, we see that the stones of remembrance were put there in order to remind the Israelites of God's faithfulness, of God's goodness, of God's provision. But I would argue that those stones point us to a greater stone of remembrance. But that stone is not plural, it's singular. We are told that Jesus, after he died for three days, he was in a tomb. And on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday, the stone that was covering the tomb was rolled away. And that stone from that moment on became the greater stone of remembrance. And that stone of remembrance is the ultimate proof that God will never let us down, that God will never abandon us, that God will never turn his back on us, that because he did it to Jesus that one time, when we place our faith in Jesus, it says in the passage that God exalted Joshua. But at the end of his life, God rejected Jesus. Why? He rejected him so that he would never reject us again. That is the greater stone of remembrance. And what I love about Luke 19 is Jesus is, is, is in Jerusalem and it says that the Pharisees are moaning and groaning and complaining about Jesus. And they're saying, aren't you going to stop these people from worshiping you? And Jesus says, you can go ahead and try. But even if the people never worship me, the rocks would cry out. Even if you remain silent, the rocks would cry out. The stones would worship me. How crazy is it that Old Testament stones and the New Testament stone does a better job of worshiping God than his own children? The rocks cry out. We can stay silent if we want, but creation is going to worship its creator. 
In the New Testament, we see Paul again and again argue the same way God argues in this passage. He argues from the greater to the lesser. Paul says if God was faithful at the cross, the, the, the greater Jordan River, then he will be faithful with everything else. He will be faithful with everything else. And that's why we don't have necessarily stones to remember. We have been given the Lord's Supper. We have been given baptism, like what we celebrated today. We did the Lord's Supper on Friday night at the worship night. We're going to do it again next month in July, uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper. But those, those ordinances are given to us as reminders of God's faithfulness, of, of God's provision. But what's interesting about the stone is that I would argue that it also points us to a, another theme or thread in this passage. In this passage, we are told, I, I, I don't know if I had you emphasize it. I did it in the last, in the last uh, service. But what we see again and again in these two chapters is on the third day, on the third day, on the third day. So it was on the third day that they went through the Jordan River. But what I love about this story is that we are told that on the third day, God provided a way. The, these people were following who they thought was God's man, Joshua. And they were following what they thought was God's plan to go into the land of Canaan. But then they get to the land of Canaan, and on the third day, they're sitting there thinking, what are we going to do? We're stuck. We thought we were following God's man. We thought we were following God's plan, and now we are stuck. The third day has arrived, and we are stuck. We are hopeless. And yet, on the third day, God provided a way. And I would argue that these group, this group of Israelites points us to another group of Israelites, 12 disciples who followed God's man under the assumption that he was carrying out God's plan. And they followed him for three years. And then they get to a place where this guy who they thought was going to bring victory over Rome gets killed. And for three days, the people who thought they were following God's man who was carrying out God's plan sat there helpless, confused, not knowing where to look. But then on the third day, God provided a way. On the third day, God did that. And the last thing I want to highlight for you here, because it's just too big to not highlight, is that we are told that they enter into the land of Canaan on the 10th of the month. And the month, according to scholars, was, was the month of Nisan. Now, the reason why that's important is because, remember, we said it was during springtime, during harvest season, they are entering into the land of Canaan during the time of Passover. Specifically, the passage says, on the 10th of Nisan. Now, why is that so important? Because if you look back to the last time God opened up a body of water, it was during this same time of year. Because remember, we are told that before the Israelites left Egypt, they celebrated the Passover. So same time of year, God opened up a body of water and they entered into the wilderness. Now, same time of year again, it's happening all over again. He's opening another body of water as they enter into the promised land. And so the miracle, this, this miracle right here on the Passover points us to the past Passover that happened during the time of Moses, the original Passover, the first Passover. But what's beautiful is that this miracle also points us to another Passover in the future. Because on this day, the 10th of Nisan, when they crossed the Jordan, according to scholars, it was the same exact day that Jesus entered Jerusalem. Now, why is that important? 
Because the 10th of Nisan was a few days prior to the Passover, and on the 10th of Nisan was the day that Jewish families went out to get the lamb, the spotless, unblemished lamb that they would sacrifice on the Passover night. That was the day they would do it. On the 10th of Nisan was the day that you had to go get your lamb for the Passover. So what's beautiful is that God in his sovereignty on the day when hundreds of thousands of Israelites were going out to get their lamb, God was providing his lamb. The same day that they were going to find their lambs, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world was entering Jerusalem. The lamb who once he died, no lamb would ever have to die again. That's the promise. On the third day, God provided the way. And in that greater Passover, he defeated not the Canaanites or the Jebusites or the Amorites. He defeated Satan, sin, and death. So in the gospel, what we discover is that in order to move forward, we must look back. And that's why every week I don't preach hey, here's what you should do. Every week I preach, here's what's been done. Martin Luther, the reformer said, you are to preach the gospel and to repeatedly beat it into people's heads. Because every week you don't need a new done, a new do, you need a finished done. And in the gospel, I would argue that we have more to look forward to because by the grace of God, we have more to look back on. Amen? Amen. 